COVID-19 has forced governments to take unprecedented steps to try and recover their economies. At the same time, some private actors warn they may be parking long-term climate visions and ambitions to make sure they survive just another day. This devastating situation could undermine important sustainability efforts. My name is Beatrice Krona, and with me today I have two experts on government spending and international finance. Maria Håkansson, CEO of the Swedish government's Development Finance Institution, and Therese Lindahl, Director of the Behaviour, Economics and Nature Programme at the Bayer Institute of Ecological Economics. Together, we'll be discussing how stimulus packages and investments can promote short-term economic recovery without compromising long-term decarbonization and sustainability goals. Welcome to Rethink Talks. So I'd like to just start by having you say maybe something very briefly about who you are. Therese, do you want to start? Yes, so I uh, work as a researcher and uh, my background is in environmental economics and behavioral economics. So, And I would say that I work with uh, policies and different informal ways to change uh, unsustainable behavior. Thanks. Maria? I have a long background in finance, investment and digitalization. And you can say that I work with impact investing, both at Swedfund, but also as the board member of various international organizations. Hmm. Thank you. I'm going to start uh, with a look at economic uh, economic stimulus packages. Therese, what is a stimulus package? Yes, so first maybe we should just say something on why they are needed at this time. So uh, we've had a, a lockdown uh, in globally and that has created a demand shock and a supply shock. A supply shock is simply that people cannot go to their work and produce goods and services. So we have uh, disruptions in supply chains. And we have also demand fog, that means that people do not consume. So this has created bankruptcies and layoffs, income losses, uh, and that has had a severe effect on people's livelihoods. And that means that they also cannot uh, consume, uh, which uh, has created then this recession and a very severe one. So this is where a stimulus package then would come in. So you could uh, use stimulus money to create jobs and save jobs uh, to boost uh, employment. Uh, so this would mean that people would then have the opportunities to support their families and to uh, demand would increase eventually. And from a business side, you could also, the, the, what the lockdown has done with the bankruptcies is that it has uh, made uh, capital being lost. For example, that people have invested in infrastructure, in physical capital, in human capital, in networks. And that is, of course, a loss not only to these businesses, but also to society. So investments money could also be used to help uh, overcome those losses. And uh, why would you say it's so important to make this post-COVID stimulus packages green? It's just that we have so many crises that we are facing, and I think that we cannot lose sight of them. For example, like the, the climate crisis. We have known for a long time that we have to shift our economies, our societies into more sustainable trajectories. So I think now is actually a good opportunity to think about what type of investments, uh, what type of job and way of doing businesses do we want to keep? And also that could eventually make us leapfrog to a low carbon and eventually a zero carbon economy. Mm. 
And some have called for loosening of emissions regulations, for example, to boost economic activity right now. Is this a reasonable way forward, do you think? No, I mean, that would just seriously undermine all the efforts that we have made so far. Uh, so I think that will be super bad uh, for the climate. And I think that's reason enough. But also, it's it's actually so that if you just invest in fossil industries, for example, they are not very labor intensive. So that would not create that many jobs. Uh, so it's not sure that that would actually be the good way to uh, boost economic recovery at this point. Yeah. And one final question for you, Therese, before I let you in, Maria. In a recent report, you identified policies that can both combat the post-pandemic crisis, uh, but also hopefully address some of the climate change challenges. What are some of them? So, for example, we uh, we think that um, to uh, to introduce or to even increase pricing carbon, which is one of the most effective ways of, of uh, reducing emissions, uh, would Uh, would be good for the climate, of course, but also the revenues, the proceeds can be used to stimulate green infrastructure or even uh, reduce labor taxes, for example, which would boost employment. Uh, Another policy that we have is uh, we look at uh, sectors that are uh, low in emission intensity but high in labor intensity. So you could actually use some of the stimulus money to invest in those sectors. That would be, for example, service sector education, healthcare, uh, to name a few, and also small green infrastructure investments we think would be good. They would create jobs, but also be associated with uh, much environmental benefits. Uh, we also have more, but maybe mm-hmm. that's... Um, and when you say small uh, green infrastructure, what's that, like solar panels? Yeah, or? like solar energy, uh, planting trees, conservation efforts. Okay. Maria... Uh, Fund is a state-owned company, right? And, and, and a development finance institution. Um, could you just maybe begin by explaining what development finance institutions are and do? Mm-hmm. Fund's mission is to fight poverty by sustainable investment. And as the Swedish Development Finance Institution, or DFI, we are part of the overall Swedish Development Aid Corporation. And we share the same goals around poverty eradication, democracy, climate, gender equality, and so on. But we use different tools. We invest in equity, debt, and funds, and we believe in the importance of the private sector. So our role is, in short, to realize investments that otherwise wouldn't happen. And we also play play an important role when it comes to capital mobilization. Okay. I think if you look across Europe, you can see that most European countries have DFIs, and they have grown in importance, both from development aid, but even more importantly, when it comes to being sustainable investors. Okay. And uh, as a development finance institution, you invest significant amounts of capital to achieve the sustainable development goals, for example. Do these recommendations that that, uh, Therese was touching on earlier, do they ring true with you as well? Absolutely. And I think one of the main learnings from the financial crisis in 2007 is that it's not enough to build back. You need to do that in a sustainable and inclusive way if you want to build resilience to future shocks and uh, crises. I think it's increasingly important that you have business models that include sustainability and that you actually build a leverage around that. So we, for example, have a business model built around the three pillars of impact on society, sustainability and financial viability, trying to create leverage and build results that last. And I think it's also worth to reflect upon that, I mean, what Therese is bringing up is the importance of stimulus packages. And what we can see in many developing countries is that the governments don't have enough 
funding for this, so they may need to rely on international support. But in general, actors who can actually provide financing and investments are even more important now when foreign direct investments are going down and the private capital to some extent is also shying away. So yes, this definitely resonates with us. Okay. And um, these kinds of, you talked about these three pillars, but also sort of... The- if we think about the things that Therese was saying, how, how do these, the knowledge of the need to really build back better now, how does that uh, impact your investment strategies specifically? Mm-hmm. Could, you give us some, could you give us some examples? Yeah, well, we have a very specific, we have a number of mission targets based on the SDG. So it's poverty reduction, it's climate, it's gender equality, and it's decent jobs. And based on those, we have built what we call the theory of change, which is really, I mean, what can we provide, which is capital and competence, what kind of direct and indirect effects does that create and how can this in in this longer term support and poverty eradication? Mm. And based on this, we have looked at, okay, how can we contribute in the best way and where the needs are the largest? So we have identified three sectors in our strategy. One is energy and climate, where we have started since 2014. We only do renewable energy. We do a lot of small scale off-grid solar panels. We do larger windmills but we also do water, sanitation, energy efficiency. The second sector is financial inclusion, which is really trying to direct more capital to small and mid-sized corporations to provide job opportunities. And finally, it's uh, healthcare. So for me, what Therese brings up is, of course, just underlining that the sectors that we are in are very important. So we are not changing anything, actually, as <laughs> part of our pandemic response, but really working, continue to work in this direction. Maria, that sounds really good. Sounds really interesting. But I still have to ask, uh, as you're trying to invest according to these principles, are you experiencing any challenges? Of course we are. I mean, we invest in some of the most vulnerable markets in the world. We have more than 60% of our portfolio in sub-Saharan Africa. So we have many kinds of risks, political risks, macroeconomic risks and so on. Many of them emphasized during this pandemic. So I think for us, it's extremely important to continue to put forward requirements and then to work with support to make sure that our companies can really realize the plans and the targets that we have set forward. But we can see now, for example, also that contextual risks related to uh, human rights have increased and then we need to put extra focus on that. So for us, it's both working with mitigating risks but also trying uh, to create value. Mm. But I believe in the importance of active ownership but also in actually being patient and being long-term if you want to achieve sustainable and inclusive results. Yeah. And so I want to touch on this thing with risk because both economic stimulus packages and development finance are essentially taxpayers' money, right? But um, there is a huge private capital market out there that can and I would say arguably should align with green investment strategies by governments. Um, How do development finance institutions like the Sved Fund um, act to boost financing for developing countries in sustainable directions? And I think, as I said, part of our mission is to take risk and we should really embrace them. But that means we need to be responsible. We need to understand them. We need to be very preventive and uh, proactive, uh, but we can never eliminate them. And we can take risks in several different ways. I mean, one way is to go in very early. I mean, Therese mentioned small-scale investments. That's one way for us to go in early when it comes to building out, for example, solar panels. And then once the project has grown or matured, it's a possibility for private capital to come in more under an asset management phase. Mm -hmm. 
Another aspect is how you structure the deal. And here we are currently working on what's called the pillar accreditation with the European Union, which would give us access to tools like concessional finance and guarantees where you can list up some risk. Or it can be other kind of platforms or structures where we take risk. So I think it's both that and it's the life cycle aspect, of course, that is very uh, important. Then I think in general that if you want to mobilize capital, then I think it's about who you are. You need to have the experience we have done this for more than 40 years, investing in these most uh, vulnerable countries. So we have a long experience on that. We have worked with climate and energy for many years. And I think if you have a portfolio where you can also show that you have a track record and you have the experience, I think that also caters for being able to attract private capital. So do you lead And then by... finally, sorry. sorry, I believe in the importance of the good example that we can also show that it's actually positive or possible to achieve strong results, not only from a sustainable point of view, but also from a financial point of view and thereby actually mobilizing and attracting capital. Yeah, I was actually going to ask, how do you see, uh, in terms of what Swedfund does, do you, you said we lead by example. Is that mm. how you kind of engage or show private other private types of private investors the, how you can be done? Or is there some other active kind of transfer of expertise from the more government-oriented investment uh, institutions to other capital market actors? One way is that we try to, I mean, that's part of, of our role that we talk about and explain what we do. We try to work with the private investors to also offer them the opportunity to co-invest uh, with us. Then I spend time in things like the Global Impact Investing Network, also mm. trying to illustrate what role a DFI can play in this and how can you attract more private capital. So we try to find very, I mean, different ways of doing this. Okay, great. Thanks. Um, Therese, I want to turn to you now and just um, among your top stimulus suggestions that you went through earlier, there were smaller scale investments like sustainable transport and energy infrastructure, for example. Um, I know the World Bank has proposed similar ones, uh, but also kind of restoration of natural areas. I think you mentioned that and providing sort of ecosystem services and resilience to, for example, floods, droughts, hurricanes, so on. What is it about these kinds of investments, would you say, that, that make them suitable at this particular point in time? Yeah, so when we have the, the recession, they are suitable for, for job creation. They often require uh, jobs. Uh, so, so that's one thing. Uh, and of course, they are also associated with many environmental benefits. So that's sort of a, to me, they are sort of a no regret kind of investments that could be made. Uh, and then, but what also is true is that they could actually have more long-lasting effect. For example, these investments, if they are done, they will be used. They are sunk, so to speak. So they will not invest in, in another sort of thing. Uh, so they will be used. And also, if you think about um, uh, innovation, if we scale up and develop these technologies, they can actually be... Um, further developing new technologies. Often technologies are developed on old ones. So you can set whole economies on a different pathway. Mm -hmm. And finally, if you invest uh, in these kinds of monies and not in fossil industry, for example, you uh, reshuffle capital a bit, which makes could make infra uh, uh, interest groups uh, more influential and powerful that could in turn influence policies in the future. So these are many, many things I think that could be good with these kinds of, of okay. investments. So, yeah, okay. Um, and I, I'm going to direct the next question to both of you, actually, but um, you can just jump in, whoever. But but uh, basically, a lot of ecosystem degradation comes from unsustainable uh, business models. So 
we're talking here about how we can build back better, but without changing some of these business models, restoration risks becoming just kind of the case of the right hand or the left hand, as it were, trying to clean up what the right hand is, is doing. How would you say investments can, from both private and state, how can they help cement this lasting shift in business practices away from that which does harm and not just boost that which does good? Mm. If I... Just, yeah, go ahead and start. Well, it was just so interesting to hear Maria's sort of experience on the ground in some of these countries where they don't have the funds. Take the EU, for example. We have, uh, uh, we are now launching a million sort of, you know, euros of stimulus packages. And at the same time, we have the Green Deal, uh, where we will commit to a zero carbon uh, economy by 2050. At the same time, if you look at bailouts of airlines, for example, you know, European airlines, mm-hmm. there are sort of almost none have conditioning. So that to me is so surprising. First, that you have this sort of policy and then, but how will that uh, be achieved? So for me, conditioning of, of bailouts and loans is something that could be used both for job creation. So it's not only goes into sort of shareholders and owners' pockets, but actually create jobs, but also that they are... Uh, have uh, commit to uh, a zero zero carbon uh, economy. So that to me would be one thing uh, that you could use. Yeah. So I hear you saying uh, more coherence. I'm still experiencing some incoherence in how we are pursuing things now post-COVID and in general. Maria, do you want to comment on this as well? Oh, but I can only echo what Therese said because I think it's the same thing from an investment perspective that it's about putting uh, criteria or conditions forward and that's what we try to do with our business model. So when we enter into an agreement, we actually put the requirements on sustainability, ESG and impact on society, what to be achieved in the contract. And then we work on supporting it, as I said, but I think that's extremely important in believing that you can actually condition things and then you can work on supporting it. And I think for us, if there's also requirements on government and other, then you create an ecosystem, which I think is very important. Yeah. And I think it's the reporting of results is another thing that I would like to bring forward, because I think you need to keep investments accountable and you need to be accountable yourself and also kind of disclose information on your portfolio. So from our perspective, we actually let our auditors also audit the numbers that we present on sustainability and on impact on society. So we give them the same kind of credibility as the financial information. And I think that's extremely important. But I think the general thing is that there is this greenwashing risk going on as well, that there is always a risk someone trying to put a nice label on what they're doing. And I think an important part is that we also develop some kind of accounting standards also for sustainability so we can drive actually reward, I mean, both direct capital to the right things, but also measure the right things. Yeah. I think what you what you brought up here, I think, is, is super important and probably requires an entirely separate podcast. But I'm still quite, it's something that lies close to my heart. And it's sort of metrics. How do we actually measure also then what we're achieving? And are we really measuring the right things? I, I have lots of thoughts myself on how we are currently measuring num- numerous of the E and the S's and the G's. We can't go into that, but maybe just a short comment from you. Do you think at the moment, even though you're doing your best, do you think where are areas that you think could be improved in terms of metrics when it comes to ESG? I think like this. First of all, I think it's very easy that ESG becomes a discussion of risk mitigation. I think you have to realize that as an owner, ESG is equally much where you create value. So I think when you when you me- measure something, you also have to realize what is it that you're measuring. Is it the risk mitigation or is it the value that you're creating? Mm. 
I think the other thing that I can see is that there's many different institutions globally that's trying to take this space. And I think that will create a lot of uh, unnecessary competition. I think you should turn to those that have uh, a long experience. So from the European Development Finance Institutions, we try to work together and work with, the, for example, the World Bank, with GIN and with others and say that we come with a recommendation. But I think there is a little bit too many standards and maybe just a thought, you need someone like more of an auditor or a standardized body to take over this, it becomes uh, a, glo- a really a global standard. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Um, we have a few minutes left, so I want to just maybe take a time for some personal reflections as well. Uh, and thinking about, you know, what um, you, you touched on it already, saying we need a, a standards body that is sort of global and that can have a, a, a global reach. But um, the the coronavirus has provided, uh, or has sorry, has proved that you know structures, uh, behaviors, things things that we didn't think were possible are suddenly seem not so impossible. So on a on a personal uh, reflection, what, where do you think we're heading from here? Do you think we're going to able be able to achieve the kind of leapfrog ahead that we I think need? Um, what, what's your thought on that, Therese? Maybe start. Yeah, no, I think it's possible, but I think it's the time to act is now. So I'm afraid that we will lose this window of opportunity. But I do think it's possible. I think that we have seen so many examples of uh, people, communities, leaders of government and businesses to change and adapt to these new conditions. We have been sort of forced to experience the new reality and new behaviors. So I think this may mean and open up uh, new ways of thinking, new ways of relating to each other, but also that we will be more accepting to change. And another thing, just to mention what you said with the the indicators and what we need to measure, I was just thinking that we are still so, you know, it's also another podcast, but uh, with the GDP, that's how we measure. And Mm -hmm. even now, when we talk about economic fallout, we're trying to change that in our sort of report by I mean, looking at jobs, so job creation, employment and well-being and livelihoods so that there are also other indicators that we may look into that may be more important in the future. Definitely. And Maria? No, the same. And I mean, I, you can see that a lot of things are changing. We made leapfrogs, for example, when it comes to digitalization and financial inclusion. And I, I mean, I worked with that in my previous life and I, I really believe in the potential here and that could be something that... That we can build on. I also think it's important to think about that we sometimes we talk about profitability and sustainability as opposite and I don't really see it that way. I think uh, sustainability is actually a prerequisite for long-term profitability and if you want to be able to mobilize money I think you can already today see that the trend is going more and more towards being green and hopefully that will be even further emphasized that it's not an opposite, but it's actually strengthening each other. And I strongly believe in that. And if we all then kind of uh, try to act in that way, I think that could be a good thing. Then what I do see with all these positive trends, I think one thing to remember is that from the markets where I work is also that in many cases, those are the people who are the most affected and they have the least possibilities to make a different choice. So therefore, I think also what Therese is into this thing around the partnership and working together, I think that's extremely important to also make sure that everyone can work in the right direction. Yeah. Great. I think uh, I'd like to wrap up with that. And uh, really interesting to hear your thoughts on different aspects of building back better post-COVID. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
You've been listening to Rethink Talks, a podcast series produced by the Stockholm Resilience Center at Stockholm University. For more episodes, head over to rethink.earth.